Old Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 2. We continue with bits from my RAF logbook when on the 12th of December 1977 at RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire, the English county that saw so many brave boys head off in their Lancasters, Wellingtons, Stirlings and the like during the Second World War, I took my first flight in an F-4 Phantom. It's a particularly flat area of the country, and in December, with a cutting easterly wind, it's so cold it'll freeze the balls off a brass monkey. Now, before anyone gets upset, a brass monkey is a metal plate used aboard an old man of war to stand cannonballs on beside the cannon, and it's made of brass to stop the chance of striking an accidental spark. Iron and brass contract at different rates, so when it gets cold, the brass plate can shrink until the balls fall off. I joined number 228 Operational Conversion Unit on Air Defence Long Course number 14. But before I was given the chance to clamber up into the lofty perch that was the cockpit of the Phantom, there was a great deal of ground training and simulators to get through. We sat in classrooms watching technicians in old brown coats chalk up diagrams on the blackboards or, if we were lucky, use one of those newfangled overhead projectors. The simulator was bolted to the floor and, before we got to use it, the tiny camera that was guided around a model landscape to simulate low flying was disabled. When the Phantom's role changed to purely air defence, sadly such fun kit was not required. Eventually, when we knew our way around the simulator well enough and had studied the intricacies of airblown flaps and slats, etc., we got our chance to fly. I have mentioned the kind and patient instructor I had, Roy Lawrence, in the previous logbook tale and how he dispatched a friendly jaguar with a sidewinder, but that was yet to come. Roy had other problems this day, namely me. I wish I could remember more of this momentous occasion, the day we kitted up in our long johns, G-suits, acrylampile bunny suits, immersion suits with rubber seals on wrists and neck, boots, silk glove inners, immersion gloves on top, helmet and harness, and waddled out to X-Ray Victor 396, sitting quietly on the line. Standing beside the twenty-ton monster, Roy took me round, showing me where the gauges were for the emergency flap, rat, gear and brakes, pressure between 2,000 and 3,100 psi. We checked the static vents were clear, that the radome was shut and locked, the intakes were clear. The hydraulic PC1 and 2 accumulator gauges were 1,000 plus or minus 50 psi and that the auxiliary air doors were open with secure linkages. We checked the pitot covers were removed and that the brake chute door was closed properly with a telltale flag to show that there was really a chute in there. I expect I looked a bit overawed as it came time to clamber up and get in. Roy would have climbed up the nav's ladder, 
one of which, I might add, would also serve as the ladder for Luke Skywalker's X-Wing in the first Star Wars movie, into the back seat and started trying to erect his inertial navigation system. I would dutifully be working around my ejector seat, checking the pins, latches, banana links, cables, rods, guards, and dialing my weight into the pitch control unit, plus the other intricacies of that explosive chair, before sitting down to strap in. Luckily, we had a sea-off crew to help hand us the straps and to remove the top pin of the seat that we couldn't reach. With my helmet pigtail plugged in, I could speak to Roy, who chatted away in his calming QFI way as I worked round the cockpit, doing everything from memory as I had learned to do in the simulator. Then came the time to wind up the pair of mighty Rolls-Royce spays that we sat wedged in between, so close that Roy's elbows would have rested on top of the intakes. With a confidence I probably didn't feel, I would have given the ground crew a wind-up signal by twirling a digit in the air, and after checking in front and behind, they would return the signal. Both engine masters on, then the right start switch to on, checking that the LP shaft started rotating immediately. That done, I would click the throttle through the HP fuel cock gate to idle and wait. Oil pressure rising, starter clicks off, check hydraulics and pneumatic pressures, nozzle below one quarter open, right generator on and buzz tie closed. With both engines running, the aircraft on internal power and everything humming along, it would be time for the functional checks. Speed brake cycle, flaps down and back to half, trims check and set two degrees nose down. Stab org switches on, check the autopilot and paddle switch. Stab orgs off. Then it was time to wave the chocks and call for taxi. Roy started off, but once we were underway, he gave me control, and I tried to steer the beast. We drove it around using the rudder pedals that were linked to the nose wheel steering once a red button on the stick was held down. It was certainly easier than the Hunter, which relied on differential brakes, operated by dabbing a bicycle brake lever on the back of the stick while the rudder was held to one side or the other. This was like steering a Cadillac. Lined up on the end of the runway, with the stick held firmly back against the stops, I did the final checks. Peter heat on, flaps halved, stab orgs engaged. Anti-skid on, caption out. Engine checks within limits, warnings out, ramps retracted, and release the brakes, powering up to full military. Clicking the throttles outboard, I pushed them further forward to full reheat, and felt the huge surge of thrust push me back into the ejector seat. The noise was incredible. The runway edges became a blur, and as the nose started to rise, I checked slightly, but we were already in the air. Gear, then flaps, Roy shouted, before we overstressed them as we accelerated away. I was riding a high of adrenaline, and my grin was so wide it risked creeping out of the confines of my oxygen mask. Those first three trips went by in a blur of activity, and with only four hours fifteen minutes, Roy stepped aside and the brave navigator, Flight Lieutenant Hurst, took his place in the back seat, for my first trip as a proper phantom pilot. 
Two flights later, it was my course colleague, Brian B.K. Hinton, student navigator extraordinaire, who climbed into the back seat for our first student cruise solo, where we did our best to terrify ourselves being without adult supervision. Four trips later, I had an instrument rating, and the conversion part of the course was more or less over. Now we had to go to work. Work meant learning the basics of intercepts. BK and I tried to understand how the Phantom radar display worked. It wasn't an A-scope. That's a simple line, like an oscilloscope. It wasn't a C-scope. That's like the display of an old air traffic radar, with the antenna in the middle of a circle and the radiating beam rotating round, showing range and azimuth. It was something in between. Our radar swung back and forth, 60 left, 60 right. So it was like a segment of an air trafficker's seascope, a bit like a large pizza slice. The drawback of that pizza slice seascope display was that as a target came close, it would have slid down into that cramped corner at the bottom of the display and would be really difficult to accurately read range and bearing. The cure was to electronically manipulate and distort the display so that the bottom of the scope was as broad as the top. This was called a B-scope, and it meant that the pie-shaped scan now looked like a square. However, in curing one problem, another was created. A target coming straight down the scope directly at us on a collision course holds a constant bearing. This is easy to see on a C-scope, as the blip moves in a direct line heading for the centre of the display. If it's going to miss you, its blip track doesn't point directly at you, but slightly to one side. On a B-scope, an aircraft on a collision with, say, a 90 degree heading difference, so I'm heading north and he's, say, heading west, will come down a line around 45 degrees to the right of the scope centerline. He'll look like he's going to miss, since he's a long way from the centre of the display, but, and it's a big but, because of the way the display is distorted to get more detail, we are now the whole bottom of the display, and anything that comes straight down is going to smack us straight in the face. A target that's going to cross ahead or behind will come down in a curved path, a bit like a hockey stick. Straight at first, but slowly as it gets closer, it will diverge slightly before, at the last minute, diving off the side of the display. Hard enough for me to explain, and even harder for us, as students, to understand. BK and I spent evening after evening memorising blip tracks and collision paths so that we could understand where to put our aircraft to get onto the ideal approach path, hit the key point and then conduct a controlled turn to roll out directly behind our target at one mile. We did it first on paper, then on bicycles pedalling at each other, then on the mechanical monster that was the air intercept trainer, and finally in the aircraft. The only real aids we had were the radar and a compass. The only variables were our heading and our airspeed. For the NAVs, this was the hardest part of the course, 
and far from the most exciting. The hard bit for the pilots was air combat training. At last we were allowed to bunt and stunt our meaty monsters. The setups were canned and we started in the rear quarter of our adversary in a position to attack and told to close for a missile shot. When we commenced, our target would turn into us and it was up to us to manoeuvre around them to get that shot or perhaps close to guns range. This would involve magical manoeuvres such as the yo-yo, both high and low. The low yo-yo we performed by flying down and to the outside of our target circular path, gaining energy so that we might pull up into a high yo-yo to reduce the corner velocity and turn hard in behind. Our cooperative target started just by flying in a circle, but soon they were allowed to reverse and fight properly, and a full dogfight would ensue. Of course, our opponents were usually instructors, even godlike qualified weapons instructors, so for us to get a shot off usually meant them fighting well below their ability level. After all, we were still trying to learn. Whilst the pilots were yanking and banking, the navs were breaking their necks trying to keep sight of the bogey when it went behind the wing line, learning how to call our eyes on, or if necessary, verbally taking control of the aircraft by talking to us. They would tell us to roll until the bogey was on the centre line of the canopy, and then pull until it ran down the canopy and magically appeared in the windscreen. We slowly progressed, ticking each exercise off in turn, punctuated by the odd problem. On trip AD3, that was Air Defence Trip 3, the weather closed in, so BK and I diverted to Coltishaw, and on AD22 we limped home with a generator failure. Around Christmas, the first Star Wars movie came out, and the whole student course went en masse to see it. We all loved it, since it seemed to be entirely about fighter pilots and their robotic backseaters, albeit in the wrong century. From then on, most of our navs got the nickname R2-D2. The course was also interrupted by a war exercise called a tachyval, a tactical evaluation. All the OCU staff reverted to a war footing, which left us, unqualified students, with nothing much to do. Of course, the RAF hates people who sit around in the mess drinking beer, so we were immediately drafted as guards and told to march around the perimeter of the airfield in the dark, freezing and soggy weather of a Lincolnshire winter. In peacetime, there were never enough guns to go around, so we usually got pickaxe handles and spent several miserable nights getting trench foot and frostbite. On our course, there were a couple of squadron leaders, old hands from the Lightning Force, who were being retrained on a decent fighter. I'll never forget seeing the man I was to go to my first squadron with, Harry McLean, sitting atop a guard tower in the pouring rain under a poncho, emitting a constant stream of swear words about the bloody Air Force that only a true Scotsman would know. All went well until some over-eager territorial army bods arrived at the perimeter to storm the airfield. Faced with a young sprog like me, wielding a bit of wood and shouting bang bang didn't have the desired effect, and before I knew it I was face down in the mud with a boot on the back of my head. 
By the end of March, the course was over, and I had my posting, number 43 Squadron, the Fighting Cocks. So I girded my loins, took my 63 hours and 15 minutes of total phantom experience, and pointed my rattly old car northwards. But that's another story.